We are in Matthew chapter 18. This is really one of the very significant chapters in Matthew, especially as it relates to us as God's people, God's children, in the context of functioning in the church. I'm going to read. I'm going to go ahead and read down through verse 9. I really, in some ways, would like to read more than that because this forms a a unit of of thought that uh, Jesus is giving. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. One more verse. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. You can see the connection then in the context. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And then he speaks to the purpose of the Son of Man coming. And it's in relationship to these little children. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus intended to establish on earth. The kingdom of heaven. Heaven come down. Heaven come to earth. The kingdom of heaven. Now, it would require more than simply the exercise of sovereign power. We read in the scriptures of him, of the Lord ruling with a rod of iron, and oftentimes that's connected with this kingdom concept. And no question there will be the administration of a rod of iron. Perhaps we could argue there already has been and is and will be. But if all there were, were a rod of iron, there would be no kingdom of heaven on earth. It would require the humiliation, not the rod of iron, the humiliation of his, of the king's own death 
And then the glory of his resurrection and ascension and ultimately his return in power and great glory when everything's going to be made right and there will be an everlasting kingdom. But this kingdom of heaven that Jesus speaks of here in our text, which he spoke of in the in the last chapter, which has been spoken of in Matthew. It's what Matthew is focused upon. The same as the kingdom of God. It's the same transferable language, emphasizing different things in relationship to this thing called the kingdom. I'm not going into all of that today. But this kingdom presently is established in hearts and visibly seen in the church on earth. Existing among the kingdoms of this world under the dominant influence of the kingdom of darkness. So this kingdom of heaven has come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven as a prayer that this might happen now and come to its full culmination in the end of this age, which it will happen. But now there are kingdoms that are established under the kingdom of darkness or the rule of the great enemy of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. And he is at work. And I'm convinced that much of what Jesus says here in this chapter is critical to our fighting or living, maybe it'd be a better word, but our living out this kingdom in this world in relationship to the great enemy who is seeking our destruction. And so Jesus is identifying the ones who make up this kingdom. He's speaking to the disciples here, the apostles, but he's also speaking to us. He's speaking to them in sort of a leadership role, but he, it, by application, it, it comes to all of us. He's identifying the ones who make up this kingdom and how life is to be lived in relationship to one another in the church. The visible manifestation of this kingdom, this rule of God in the hearts of his people. So Jesus is not giving the disciples or us steps by which we might earn entrance into his kingdom. You might read this and think that way. Don't think that way. That's not what he's doing. Only those who are born again, who are given life to be children of the kingdom, can, as John states in John chapter 3, see or enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again, right? There must be an operation of the Spirit of God. The life of God must come to you. He must do something. He must invade your space, your, your life. He must set up Himself, His life. In you. And then you're in a position to respond to the things that Jesus is saying in this passage. I'll emphasize that here again in a moment because I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to think that we're talking about something here that you must accomplish apart from Christ Himself. And so, verse 1 says, at that time, The disciples came to Jesus saying, who then? 
is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Some translations don't translate the word then. It should be. It's a Greek word. Who then? There is a context to the question, in other words. Something has gone before it. Something has set up. Something has led the disciples to come to the place where they ask the question that they asked. And if you just think in the recent history, Peter was recently told, so he'd confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he was told, to you are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I think he said that to Peter, representing the apostles. But whether I'm right or not on that, he, Jesus did say to you, to Peter, you get, is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those, those are words of authority. You've been given authority. And then not long after that, Peter, James, and John go marching with Jesus up on the top of a mountain. And you know what they saw. They, they saw something that, that was unique. And while they were up there, and enjoying, it's probably not the best word to use, being impacted by what they were seeing. An insider's view of the glory of Jesus Christ there on that mountain while they were observing that and being affected by that. Down down in the in the valley, the other nine were trying to engage in ministry to cast out a father's uh, son's, uh, a son of a father's a son, demon, something that was possessing. You remember the story. And they were unsuccessful in that healing attempt. And then Jesus interacts with Peter. And he gives us this account of kings of the earth. And he says, the sons of the sons are free, implying you're one of the I'm the son in me. You are a son, so you're free. Speaking to them of the status that he has in him, don't think Peter understood all of that. I'm sure he didn't understand all of that. And then on top of those events that they had experienced, Jesus has had spoken, you remember once again, of his being killed back in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 17. And so all of this was going on in the minds of the apostles. In fact, I think it's Mark who says that as they were walking with Jesus, they were discussing things among themselves. They were disputing among themselves. And that's the context of the question that they ask here that's recorded by Matthew. How is your death going to affect your kingdom? How is what you're talking about going to affect what you have said about us? We've been following you. We've been anticipating something that is developing. And so they ask this question, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I want us to seek to enter into the heart of what our Savior is saying here. To us who are children of the kingdom, not just to these disciples, but to you and me. And the question itself reveals a fundamental heart problem in these disciples that needed a change, to change. And, and questions often do that. Sometimes our questions say more than we think. Jesus heard something in the disciples' question that was fundamentally off. Something in their heart, something in their thinking was off. Of course, they were still hanging on with an improper concept of what this kingdom was all about. We're aware of that. And they continued with that mindset for quite a while longer. 
But they were chosen to be leaders in this kingdom. And the kingdom as they conceived or perceived this kingdom meant that they were going to be significant within this kingdom. Significant leaders. And they were focused on their part. Their minds were upon an external political restoration of Israel. They didn't yet understand the nature of His kingdom or the kind of spirit that would distinguish His kingdom from the other kingdoms of the world. By the way, later on He's going to address them again on this. You know, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. Their question indicates that they were really motivated by selfish ambition. They were interested in their roles, their status, their position. Oh, they were following Jesus. They, They would gladly say they were disciples of His. They were believers, at least to some degree, simple believers perhaps, or I would call it immature believers. But they got wrapped up in the wrong thing. Their, their part in His kingdom. But Jesus was interested in a kingdom of, of servants who serve in love, not from egocentric ambition. And so He must confront this misguided thinking. This kind of self-focused ambition will only result in disputing and rivalry and division. Even after this account, see, the disciples are still learning. They're still growing. Eventually, they're going to get it. Well, all but one of them. But look over in chapter chapter 20. I don't know how much longer down the road this was. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to him This is James and John, their mother, kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, what do you wish? What does she wish? That my two sons might sit in a lofty position. One on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that... I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. By the way, it was as they went through what Jesus describes right there that they will be learning more what it meant to be truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's really where we all are growing, progressing, if we're, if we're His. They said to Him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed Drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. You see, this kind of thinking only stirs up division, disputing, rivalry. And brethren, this does not fit the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus gives an answer to them. And His answer was gracious. But it was pointed. And He gets to the heart of what greatness in the kingdom of heaven really is. I assume that Jesus was grieved when He heard them ask, Who then is greatest? And really that word greatest is literally greater. 
Who is greater in the kingdom of heaven? A comparative word. And, you know, greatest is not a bad way to translate it, but there's a comparison going on here. That's the idea. They were comparing themselves among themselves. Who is greater? And surely that must have grieved the soul, the heart of Jesus, just to hear them ask that question. Ah, maybe his countenance showed that. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But this one thing I am encouraged by, he doesn't turn away in disgust. He doesn't kick them to the curb. He doesn't say, you're not mine. Because see, having loved them, all the way, all the way to the end, John 13, all the way. But they needed his help. I guess if you don't get anything else this morning, get that. You need His help. I need His help. I'm just praying down here, Lord, blow away the, blow away the fog. Blow away. Get rid of the things that would keep me from thinking clearly as I preach and from you thinking clearly as you listen. But what does He do? Calls a little child to him, to himself. Some have speculated this, this might have been Peter's child. And it may have been because he probably was at Peter's house, or at least he was, in, he was where Peter lived. And it might have been one of P- Peter's children. I don't know. But he calls a little child to him, probably no more than two years old. And he set him in the midst of them. Think about this. Jesus, with these grown men on a mission, a mission to establish a kingdom, powerful kingdom in this world. And they're asking him a question about rank within the kingdom. He spots a little kid. Come here. And the little child comes to him. And I don't know how long, I don't suppose it was boom, 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 we read it that way. But I imagine there might have been at least a bit of a delay as Jesus held that child. Maybe looked at the child. Maybe left their minds to wonder, what's he doing? What's this about? What's, what's the point here? For you see, the disciples seem to have a low view of children. Do you remember that? Look at chapter 19, verse 13. Then then little children were brought to him. The same word, little children. They were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Why, Jesus? For of such. He's not saying all the little children, but he's saying there's something about them. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Jesus loves children. And for more reasons than one. And to stay just within our context here, I would say it's not everything about children. Everything about children is not 
necessarily a model or something to hold up as an example. But there is something about children, especially in this child, in this moment. They represent a quality that he says exists in those who enter the kingdom of heaven. And it seems to me that we could boil it down to this, a simplicity of trust and dependence. And I think this is one of the major points as well. There's no thought of its own status in a little child. Someone said, a king's child has no more thought of its own greatness than a beggar's. We're talking about a a two-year-old. Two-year-olds don't say, how much does your dad make? Two-year-olds don't care about that. Status is not on their mind. Position is not on their mind. They would play together without evaluating their positions. Or the positions of their father. And so Jesus' response here in verse 3 really is shocking when He says, Assuredly, verily, surely, certainly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children... Brethren, I'm going to be out with it. I I feel like I have experienced to some degree a conversion this week in my thinking and meditating on this passage. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that must have been a shocking Statement to the disciples, as it may be for some of us. You see, Jesus, he's answering the question, but it doesn't sound like he's answering the question, does it? The question is, who's the greatest? Jesus, we didn't ask you, how could you enter? We want to know who's the greatest. Well, Jesus is essentially saying, my concern is not who's the greatest. My concern is that you're in it. Now, somebody might be asking, as I did, well, were they converted at this point? And see, I think when we ask that question, we're, we're missing the point. We're, we're getting, we're going to get bogged down in a place where we're missing the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. Were any of the twelve unconverted? Well, we know one of them was. So I'm not even going to get into the discussion of whether or not they were, con- they were converted in the sense of born again. By the way, born again and converted are not the same words. Jesus' point is not to pronounce them unconverted, but to establish a truth for all who will enter His kingdom. He says, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's, that's about as... A clear statement as one can make, and Jesus is wanting it to be clear. There is something very important here about his kingdom. The word converted means to be to be turned around. This is the only time in in I think any of the translations that I know of where it's translated converted. Every other time it's turn or go back or something of that nature. There is another word for repentance in Scripture, and that's not the word that's used here, but it's a similar concept. 
The idea is to be turned around, to go in another direction. In other words, disciples, there's something about your thinking that's wrong and you need it turned around. And this is the result of being born again. And I'm not saying it's the result of them being born again right here. It's just the result of being born again. When, when, when Jesus later tells Peter, you will be converted. He wasn't saying you're going to be born again. He's saying you're going to experience a change. And the idea of being converted is the experience of that life which has been given to us. The new birth is that which enables a proud sinner to be converted and become as little children. Pride, arrogance, and selfish ambition need to be turned from because they don't fit His kingdom. And so a fundamental heart level turn from self to Jesus. Are you hearing this? Not just from self to a thing or a way of life. Turn from self to Jesus. And it's as you turn from self to Jesus that you are able to become as little children in trust and dependence. And that's the attitude and the spirit of the children of the kingdom of heaven. And you know, if you're wondering, like the disciples were, many people today are, I think, can, and we can get caught up with this. We can get distracted. Pride is such a dangerous thing. It can enter into any of our, our minds and affect us because we're still in this flesh. But if you're wondering how you can be greater than someone else or anyone else in Christ's kingdom, Or the church. How can I get to another position? How can I move up? How can I get in that position that I really want? If that's what's driving you, you need a change of heart. I need a change of heart. You need to turn from such self-focused thinking. You need spiritually what Jesus is observing naturally in this child. Okay? Children aren't naturally humble, by the way. But Jesus is observing something in this child that is representative. In fact, we know that because it doesn't take long for you to see that self-centered pride stuff in your children, right? It comes out real, real quickly. So Jesus is not talking about children in general. He's talking about something specific here. In verses 4 through 6, He gets more specific as he identifies the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now he's getting to the to the answer to the question. It begins with a heart level, a conversion, a heart level change, an identification of something that's needed within us. And so that we begin, we're able to take on the spirit of a little child and whoever then humbles himself, he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself. And so he continues to point to a natural characteristic of this little child that is illustrative of the character of the children of the kingdom. And notice, he doesn't say this just happens to you. Did you read that? Jesus says, whoever humbles himself. He's pointing out something that born-again ones can and must 
do. It's not natural to our flesh. It's not something that's just going to happen. But when the law of the spirit of life in Christ is at work in us, we are enabled then to hear Jesus and respond. And so what is this? What does this mean to humble himself? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child. The idea here is to come down from your lofty viewpoint. He's seeing the disciples in this place that they need to come down from. Come down from this aspiration for status. And demonstrate a spirit like this little child. In that moment, that child represented a lowly position. Not promoting itself as superior, but receiving from Jesus in that moment without heirs. That child, that child was not thinking in that moment about his status because he was next to Jesus. He was likely enjoying the attention that he was receiving. But it wasn't because of who he was. He wasn't, he wasn't aspiring for anything. There was no ambition for higher status. He was content as a dependent, trusting child. A dependent, trusting child. That's a humble spirit. A spirit of dependence upon Jesus is fundamental to greatness in His kingdom. It is not a focus upon who you are. It's a focus upon who He is. And who is He? Jesus modeled this spirit, didn't He? He modeled this spirit of humility. He humbled Himself. He came down as a little child. Interesting. That word that's translated little child is, you know, there's another word for child in the Greek that's used a lot more. Sons. Usually translated sons, sometimes children. This is a son, this is a word that's not as commonly used. It's used seven times in Matthew chapter two. You know who it's talking about? Jesus. That little child. That little child who came down from eternity into time. He joined himself with humanity as Stuart read in Philippians two and prayed. And we marvel at his humiliation, or at least we should. It was no light thing. It was no insignificant thing. It was monumental. So much so, I don't think we really can understand the depths of that humiliation. So that by his life, death, and resurrection, we might be joined with God. In other words, he came to serve, not to be served. To ransom, not to be ransomed. He came to do what he is really calling upon his disciples to do. Walk in this same spirit. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. His mind is Greatness in the kingdom. The mind of Christ 
is greatness in the kingdom. Peter did come to understand this. I know they struggled after this. I don't think they got it until after the resurrection. But first Peter, we see him writing in chapter five in a way that he surely got it when he said, the elders, verse one, who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder. I'm not the Pope of Rome. I'm not the chief. I'm not the Duke of the Kingdom. I'm a fellow elder. And was there something special? Yes, he was a he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So we're not denying the way in which God especially gifts and uses men. But this is this is because of the relationship with Jesus. A common relationship that all of the children of the kingdom have. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says to these elders, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Serving as overseers. And we're just we're just full of ourselves enough to take that word overseers and run with it. And so he has to say, not by compulsion. You need to be converted and become as little children so that you can humble yourself as a little child, as this little child. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. I don't have an agenda. I'm not promoting myself. I can't be doing what I'm doing for what I might get out of it. That's not the kingdom of heaven. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, you younger, the younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to what you hear the relationship here in the kingdom. This is a relationship of humility. And so he says, submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Apostle Paul. Touches upon this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, when he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Do you hear that spirit of humility? Philippians chapter two. May the spirit of God help us. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, this is the spirit. 
This is, ex- this is exactly the way Christ was. It's the spirit of Christ. You see, greatness in Christ's kingdom cannot be quantified. It is not determined by who does the most or who knows the most or who gives the most. And sometimes we form our relationships within the kingdom based upon that. No, it's a quality of spirit within us that is childlike in simplicity and trust and devotion so that we are serving our King and we're serving one another in humility and and love. And so look what Jesus says in verse 5 and into verse 6. He says, The spirit of humility, whoever receives one little child, is what it looks like. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever doesn't do that, whoever does the opposite of that, really, whoever causes or offends, causes, is a stumbling block, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It's an egregious thing, Jesus says. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's, that's the heaviest stone that they, they knew. There's a lesser stone. There's a bigger stone. And it's not just in the sea. It's the depths of the sea. That's, that's moving out beyond shallow. That's going out where there's no return. In other words, he's saying it's better. He's not saying do this. He's just drawing a parallel. This is how serious this matter is that he's talking about. The spirit of humility is expressed in mutually edifying relationships of love in Christ. And this cannot be done apart from the spirit of humility. Little children. When he says in verse 5, whoever receives one little child. He's moving here from the concept of just thinking about two-year-olds. And so you're a child lover. It's not just being a child lover. It's, it's, it's loving and giving yourself to those who may not be the influential ones. But they're like little children. They're like a little child. Whoever receives one little child. And he's talking about believers because in verse 6 he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. These are the ones who make up his kingdom, aren't they? I mean, back in chapter 13 and verse 38, Jesus said in the parable, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. And, and, and you remember Paul's words in Galatians 3.26, the sons of God are those who, are, who have, it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we are the sons, the children of God. So we don't despise little ones, seemingly insignificant ones. If they're believers in Christ, that's the issue. And do you hear what Jesus is saying in verse 5? Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Why do you relate 
to one another. Community Baptist Church. What is the basis of your relationship? I hear Jesus saying here that relationship to Him is directly connected to our relationship with those who are His. He says, in my name you receive. You welcome. That word receive is the idea of welcoming. Not just putting up with. You are welcoming. Whoever welcomes one little child... Who believes in me? In my name. Because they are His. You are actually, Jesus says, you're actually receiving me. You're receiving me. What what you do to them, you're doing to me, right? Receiving one another, not in a self-centered way, I'm not trying to have a relationship with somebody because I think having a relationship with them is going to bolster me or aid me or help me or get me something. You understand what's going on here? Which will move me to have a relationship with the least among you. That's actually the greatest. And that's an expression of the greatness of the kingdom. Is that we are actually relating to those who we're not judging to be the greatest. That very act is demonstrating the Spirit of Christ that is in us. As we come down off of that lofty mindset and engage with one another, with a little one like this in His name, in my name, We're actually receiving Christ. I don't think we think about this as much as we should. And therefore, we probably have more friction among us than we ought to. There's probably more tension among us than there ought to be. Because we're not thinking this way. And that's true. I'm talking talking across the board in Christianity, not just Community Baptist Church. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 15 and verse 7? He said, very similar thought here. Therefore, receive one another. Just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. If Christ has received my brother. And if he's a brother or sister in Christ, he has. If Christ receives them as I receive them, I'm receiving Christ who has received them. Jesus said in another place in the same context, I think it may be Luke's or maybe Mark's edition of this. He says, and if you if you receive one of these little ones, you receive me. And if you receive me, you're not just receiving me, you're receiving my father. You're my brother and sister. Because of our mutual union in Christ. You're not important to me. Because I evaluate you in some other way. You ought to be important to me. Because you're important to Jesus. And so the humble spirit of love understands. And responds 
to the warning of verse 6. And the, the humble spirit of love doesn't read Jesus' words in verse 6 and say, well, that's ridiculous, that's horrific. Why would He say something like that? No, you see, you see the significance and the seriousness of it, of this kingdom that He's established. He's establishing. And the relationships that that He wants us to have with one another. So that we will not do anything. And I'm going to say more about this next week, Lord willing, but Jesus loves the members of His kingdom enough to issue such a harsh warning. Don't be the cause of stumbling and sin in one of His little ones. We'll look at that more next week. So then rather than being concerned about being great, be concerned about helping your brother and sister in Christ avoid sin. That's the point in this context. In verses 6 through 9. Be concerned about helping your brother and sister in Christ avoid sin. Don't be an offense. Don't sin yourself. Don't be a stumbling block. And we'll think about that more next week. But children of God, as we close today, let us continually turn from the spirit of fleshly ambition. Can we put it to death? Can we heed the words of Christ? Can we see the significance of this pride that focuses on our status and notoriety in the church rather than serving and edifying one another in love. And beloved in Christ, we're all God's little children. There's no word probably used more than children. Not this particular Greek word, but the word translated children or sons. Related words, there's probably no other relationship in Scripture describing you and me who are part of the kingdom of God than that one right there. Children. Children. What more do you want? In the sense of simplicity, of trust and dependence, satisfied, content, being one of His own, simply to serve. Here I am. Not this false humility. I'm just a poor little whatever. No, no. I'm a little, I'm your little child. Here I am. How do you want me to serve? How do you want to use me? Remain a child. There are other areas where we need to mature. Remember John, you know, I write to you little children. I like to, uh, I write to you young men and I write to you older men. So there is a maturity if looking at children from another vantage point. There's a, we need to grow out of childhood and another from another perspective, but not in this one. Simply trusting. Humbly trusting. Humbly dependent being used as He sees fit in His kingdom. Not worried about what others may think about me and how great I may be in the eyes of others. So by the power of the Spirit of Christ, let's humble ourselves and receive one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's care for one another in this, with this selfless love and Christ-honoring humility. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us to help one another. Father, I pray for your...